Well, Father, uh, uh, last night we were uh, watching and wondering and uh, waiting for uh, states to be called and waiting for an election to be called, but, uh, but you called it before the foundations of the world. Uh, you sit in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. You raise up rulers, you set them down. You uh, blow on them and they wither, Isaiah says. We thank you that uh, we thank you that you are in absolute control. When we remember that, we calm down. When we remember that, we can sleep. When we remember that you are in charge of everything in our lives, we can relax. But when we forget and uh, you get small and our problems get real big, then we get ourselves in a lot of trouble because we've lost perspective. So how grateful we are, Lord, that uh, you are calling the shots in this world. We are so grateful that there is no chance, that there is no luck, uh, that there is uh, nothing that we would call fate that is impersonal. But you have a plan, you have a purpose. Uh, you have ways that we do not understand. You have methods that make no sense to us. But even when things are confusing and perplexing to us, everything is in absolute control. And everything is working according to your purpose. Everything. We don't understand that. We can't fathom it. We just read it in the Bible. And it's either true or it isn't. And it is. So thank you, Father, for the fact that you have worked. And uh, we are grateful. Uh, we want to declare tonight that our trust is in you, period. Uh, it would be a real mistake, no matter where we stand, no matter where we are, to put our trust in anything else other than you. Uh, we thank you that you work among the affairs of men and that you are involved. We thank you that we have a right in this nation to vote we thank you that we have the opportunity to express ourselves. But there is, even as we express ourselves, there is that invisible hand that is in charge of all events. So Father, we pray tonight uh, for our president that you would give him great wisdom. Well, I would thank you, Lord, that we did not have a situation like we had four years ago. Because all that does is create chaos and, well, just everything we saw four years ago. Thank you that that did not occur. We pray, Lord, that you would give great wisdom to our leaders, that they can move ahead uh, with a great sensitivity to you and to your spirit. We're facing many issues in this nation. We pray for Mr. Bush that you would give him the mind of Christ, that you would give him discernment and wisdom, that you would enable him to navigate those things, Lord, that uh, are facing him that uh, we know nothing about. We would pray for ourselves that you would give us the same kind of wisdom and direction. Some of us, Lord, are stuck. Some of us are confused. Some of us are unsure about the next step. Some of us are disappointed. May you give us the wisdom to trust. May you give us the wisdom to seek you. 
May you give us the wisdom to wait, if that's what you're calling us to do. May you all give us the wisdom to seek wise counsel, because that's a biblical principle. Now, calm us down tonight. Many of us have had frantic days. We've been on the phones. We've been meeting with people. We've been running around. We've been stuck in traffic. Calm us down. Um, Help us to uh, lay aside the things that are so pressing and help us to hear from you. Thanks for these guys that are so faithful to come out. Uh, I pray that your favor would be upon every one of them. We pray for David and his wife as they're in very, very difficult circumstances right now as he's deteriorating physically. We pray that in the midst of this affliction that you would be merciful to that family. May they sense your presence. May your hand be upon them. In Jesus' name, we would pray these things. Amen. Amen. Proverbs is about a father instructing a son about life. Do you remember when you were small? Do you remember how big your father was? Do you remember... uh, Do you remember where you lived? What's the first house you can remember? I I can remember being at a um, Christmas parade in Bakersfield, California. And it was real cold. And my mom had bought me a coat that afternoon with a little... uh, collar with wool on it, you know, that fluffy stuff. And, and I remember being at the parade, and I couldn't see what was going on. And I remember my dad, my, my dad just picking me up, putting me on his shoulders. And I could see everything. It was great. It was great. Life was good back then. Uh, in Santa Claus, you had, the, you had the marching band. You had the whole thing. It, it was good stuff. Uh, when we're real small... Have you had the experience of going back maybe to where you were raised and going back to a house or going back to, oh gosh, I I remember driving by the church that I was raised in um, when I was probably 40. And I hadn't been there since I was 12. When I was a little kid, that church was the biggest building I'd ever been in. It was huge. It was like the American Airlines Center. And I remember driving by that thing when I was probably 40 or 41. I don't think that thing would seat 400 people. But you know when you're a kid, everything looks so big. When we're children, our fathers look big. Um, Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Parenting, opens his book with really uh, a remarkable story. I'll just read it to you. One day when our daughter Kelsey was two years old. She started pointing at every family member's chair around the dinner table. I was gone at the time. She began, Mommy, Allison, Graham, Kelsey. She then pointed to my empty seat and said, God. Lisa, my wife, said, Honey, that's not God. That's, that's Papa. Jesus, she replied with a smile. Three, three days later, All of us were together in a hotel room when Kelsey did it again. She started pointing at everybody and announcing his or her name. When she got to me, she said, Jesus. I said, sweetheart, I'm not Jesus, I'm Papa. Kelsey replied, no, you're Papa God. 
I, I'm going to tell you, that blew me away. Because, you see, what that little girl was reminding her father, two-year-old girl, what Cherie's reminding her father of the fact that, you see, fathers represent God to their children. Pastors, quite frankly, represent God to their congregations. I... Um, I just finished up this, this mentoring book on sons. I, I told you I finished it six weeks ago, but then there's a phase where you go back through it one more time, and you polish it up, and you put in quotes and stories. So I, I did this this week, and, and that's the fun part, because it's all the work that's done. But uh, I, uh, I have a chapter in there, and I mentioned four pastors uh, in this area that, uh, that are all in federal prison. Uh, one's in prison for molesting young boys in his church. And, and these guys are all conservative doctrinally. One's in prison for molesting young boys, and others that I can think of is in prison for molesting young girls. Uh, another is in prison for committing sexual assaults. And I think he's got a life sentence. And the way he was recognized, he was assaulting this woman who went to his church. He had a mask on, but she recognized his voice because she would listen to his tapes on the character of God. And that's how she identified him. The other guy's in prison for embezzling over $100,000 from his church. Now, all these guys doctrinally would fit in here. But uh, there was a real problem. Uh, they, pastors are to represent God by teaching his word and by living out his word to their congregation. Fathers, especially when children are little, fathers represent God to little children. And those of you that have had a real difficult time with your fathers growing up, a real difficult time, and especially if your dad was in the church and was a committed believer and was very gracious out in public with people, but if he was very difficult to live with at home and very critical of you, and uh, verbally abusive and a tyrant in the home. If you grew up with a father like that, you've had real issues with God. Men like that tend to, in, tend to raise sons who have no interest in the Lord because that father represents God in the early stages. Uh, it is a huge responsibility to be a father. It is a huge responsibility to be a grandfather because we are the first introduction that kids have Towards God. Can you imagine this little girl sitting around the table, pointing at her daddy's chair and saying, Jesus? I'm, sweetheart, I'm not Jesus. God. Papa God. Pop. I, I'm going to tell you something. That blew me away. But you see, do you see how strategic a role it is that we play? Now, what's interesting, the, the, the older they get, the more they're convinced that we are not deity. <laughs> because we're flawed. We never told them we were deity. But isn't that interesting how we go through these different phases in life? But you understand the point, don't you? We represent God to our children in the early years. We play an amazingly strategic role in their lives. So we're in Proverbs. Proverbs 4 tonight. And in Proverbs, he is looking back. In Proverbs 4, he is looking back He's instructing his son, but Solomon is looking back to when he was a son. 
He's looking back to when he was growing up. He's looking back to the instruction. Uh, you know, a father is just a son who has grown up. It just moves on from generation to generation. Yeah, your, your son will be raising sons and daughters. Just a matter of when. It's just a matter of when that occurs in his life. In Proverbs chapter 4, here's what we read. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. And give attention that you may gain understanding. Uh, the, the, the purpose of being a father is not to raise children. The purpose of being a father is to raise children who can then in turn raise children. It's your job to raise a child raiser. You got to look at it that way. You got to look beyond the immediate. You got to look past where you are right now, that, that this one I'm dealing with right here is going to be 40 years old one day. That there are implications, there are consequences to what I'm teaching and what I'm doing here. Um, my son, he says, the instruction of a father, hear it, 4.1, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching, do not abandon my instruction. Now here we go. When I was a son to my father, Tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this is Solomon speaking. His father was David. His mother was Bathsheba. Do you think this couple was concerned about what they would teach to this young boy as he grew up? Uh, sure they were. And they were doubly concerned because there had been a great sin that they had committed in their life. Uh, David and Bathsheba, as they had Solomon born to them, and as they began to raise him, Solomon, as you know, or David, had, had many other wives, and he had other sons. Now, David had blown it with his other sons. Uh, as, as I'd been working through all this king stuff and this mentoring stuff, sons... Uh, the best I can tell, none of those 43 kings ever purposely mentored their sons spiritually to follow them and to take their place. I, I don't see any of it, any of them mentioned. Now, most of those guys, as we found out last year, were personally in rebellion to God, so they're not going to mentor their sons biblically. But of the eight good kings out of the 43, I don't see that any of them at least the scripture doesn't declare that they purposefully prepared their sons after them to take the leadership mantle of, of the nation, although that was their job. The only guy that I can see where the scripture really points out that he mentored his son, attempting to get him, getting him ready for the responsibilities, was David. But David only did it after he'd blown it with the other three boys that he had. And you know, David went through unbelievable heartbreak in his life because of what happened with his sons. You know, two of them rebelled and tried to, tried to usurp the kingdom from him. Um, one of them raped his half-sister. You know, it was just horrible stuff going on. Uh, when it came to Solomon, I think David realized, I, I'm going to put all of my efforts. I've screwed up. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to try and get this right. But David and Bathsheba, I think, when this boy was born into their home, felt themselves at a tremendous disadvantage because of sin that had occurred in their own life. Now, many of us... 
can relate to this. Because we feel like, you know, I have fallen so short. I have made huge errors. I, I, have, I have messed up. Uh, I'm sure they were concerned about credibility issues when Solomon got old enough to understand. See, when our kids are small, they think we're perfect. When our kids are small, they think we're God. When our kids are small, they think their dads can do no wrong. But as they get older and older and older, they begin to see the flaws. They begin to see the shortcomings. They begin to see the fact that we're not flawless. They begin to discover flaws here and there. Because no father is perfect. There's only one father who is perfect. And that's the Heavenly Father. Every, every child at some point is going to be disappointed by their father. Just the way it works. Um, uh, your dad at some point, you might have had a great dad, but he disappointed you somewhere. You're going to disappoint your kids. It's just how life works. I, I think David and Bathsheba, though, had a tremendous sense of, uh, of inadequacy because of sin that occurred in their lives. Uh, and, and here's what tends to happen. When we have a sense, and when sin is fresh, and when uh, failure is fresh in our lives, what the tendency to do is, is to then back up 10 yards and punt on doing any teaching at all, because we feel that we have screwed up and we have nothing to teach. Um, that, that's just human nature, and the enemy is accusing you. So how do you do, deal with that? Well, it depends on the age of the child, and it depends on what has occurred. But if the child is at an age where they're aware of what has occurred, what do you do? I think what you do is you discuss what has occurred, if they're aware of it, and can handle it emotionally. I mean, if they're six years old, you're probably not going to have the same conversation as you would with a 16-year-old. You understand what I'm saying. But I think if there's been error, if there's been fault, if there's been wrongdoing, what do you do? You confess it. You admit it. You put it on the table. You say, this is where I've screwed up. I think at some point, David had to have had a conversation with Solomon, and he had to tell him, here's what occurred. Here's what occurred with your mom. She had a husband. And I think he had to go through the whole story with him. Because he was going to find, was he going to find out what happened? Was he going to find out about the fact that she had a husband and while he was fighting that David saw Bathsheba and they got together and she got pregnant and he had this guy come back and eventually had to send this guy in the front lines and have him killed? At some point, David had to tell the story. So there was a great sense of... Um, There was a great sense of, of, quite frankly, of disqualification. So how do you get over that disqualification? You admit your sin. Dysfunctional families, we've all heard of dysfunctional families. Dysfunctional families don't deal with reality. If you want a functional family that's healthy, then deal with reality. If David had not have talked with Solomon at some point about what David had done in his own life, that's like having an elephant sitting in the front room and nobody is talking about the fact there's an elephant sitting in our front room sipping iced tea. 
That's what dysfunctional families do. When you've got a father who's an alcoholic, nobody talks about it. It's too painful. Uh, healthy families deal with the situations that are before them. Healthy families communicate. Healthy families say, we got a problem. Healthy, problem, uh, healthy families say, you know what? we got big conflict. We've got sin in the camp. And fathers are responsible to lead and initiate the spiritual direction of the family when there is a problem. You don't hide it. You don't put it under the carpet. You don't sweep it under the, uh, under the rug. You deal with it. And then you can get healthy. Solomon had an interesting, here we are talking about this great King Solomon. He had a very interesting childhood. Some of you have had very interesting childhoods. He had a father who was an adulterer, married his mother. He had a father who, was, who had murdered his mother's original husband. There's a real interesting family there. How would you feel if you were David and you had this little boy? Well, you'd feel just like you do with your kids. You want to instruct them, you want to teach them. But you look at your own life, and you look at your own faults, and you say, gosh, who am I? Who am I? See, none of us can do this without God's help. None of us, hey, listen, guys, none of us, none of us. Do you know what? We're all guilty. We've all screwed up with our kids. I mean, don't you wish, you, some of you older guys, don't you wish that you could go back and do it all over again? See, because you, you learned a ton. I mean, by the time you figure out what you're doing, they're out of the house. By the time you're qualified, they're gone. You know? So see, there, we, we deal with all kinds of feelings of inadequacy and guilt, and, and, and see, that's where we need the grace of the Lord. But if we'll be honest and if we'll talk and we'll admit, you know, God heals families and God can heal situations. And you know what? Let me tell you something else. When you take the step of being honest about sin and being transparent and talking about your faults and where you have fallen short, you say, I can't do that because they'll never trust me. They'll never trust you until you get to that point where you're honest and then you begin Rebuilding trust. And trust can be rebuilt. It might take time, but it can be rebuilt. Solomon's going back to his home. What an amazing home it must have been that he grew up in. Uh, Solomon grew up in a cesspool, quite frankly. Alexander White has said. He's got all these stepbrothers and sisters, and they all live in the palace, and there are all these different women that are married to his father. That's one hell of a family. And I don't mean that in a profane sense in terms of speech. I mean that had to be hell on earth to live in that kind of situation. The jealousy that was going on between those wives and all these kids that are uh, competing for the attention of their father and all the, 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 in fact, White calls it a cesspool. That family must have been a cesspool. I bet you David had some regrets. I bet you David, if he could have done it over again, he wouldn't have married those multiple wives and violated the word of God because God said you just marry one wife. See, he had regrets, you've got regrets. 
I've got regret. Gosh, I wish I could go back and do this and do this, do this, this. God's got a mercy and grace. See, we're talking about parenting. We're talking about grandparenting. We've got two things we're trying to do. Number one, you guys that have kids at home under your roof. Now, how many of you still have kids at home under your roof? Okay. How many of you don't? Okay, we've got two issues here. So we want to look at this for the guys that still have kids under their roof. And then, as we deal with it, we want to be mindful of the guys. Your kids are up and gone. But see, whenever we talk about fathering, the tendency is to get guilty about all the things I didn't do. So we're, we're dealing with two different issues here. But God put, this in, 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 God put this in here, guys, for us. Not to condemn us, not to put us under a heavy load of guilt, but to encourage us and to instruct us. So let's move on here and let's see what Solomon is going to say to his boy that he's raising now. Okay? When I was a son of my father, 4-4, four, four, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. David didn't get passive because David, because David had screwed up. The tendency would have been to back off and not say anything. Who am I to teach this child? But David didn't get passive. The enemy wants men to become passive. David didn't do that. David stepped out and began to teach. Solomon says, hey, my dad taught me. My dad told me certain things when I was a little kid growing up. What did he teach me? Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, Solomon. Is it not interesting that when Solomon was to take the throne from his father and to take the place of his father, that God appeared to him and said, I'll give you anything you want, and Solomon asked God for wisdom? We're all aware of that. Why did he ask God for wisdom? Well, maybe we get a glimpse into the reason because he looks back and he says, it was my father David who told me, whatever you do, acquire wisdom. I think we can attribute the fact that Solomon would ask God for wisdom when he was a young man. God said, I'll give you anything. Lord, what I would like from you is wisdom. Where did that come from? It obviously came from what his father had instructed him in regard to the priority of wisdom over everything else in life. That, that is a reflection on the teaching that David did in the life of Solomon when he was raising this boy. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. See, David did not want Solomon to make the mistakes that he had made. Now, isn't that true in your life? Man, I'll tell you, if there's any motivation for fathering, it's to help your sons avoid the mistakes that you made. That's a great motivation. It's, it's a godly motivation. So, so you begin to teach them and instruct them based on your experience and where you fell short in your own life. See, that's where God brings good. That's where God brings good out of evil. We've all screwed up. Well, how can God ever bring good out of that? Well, God brings good out of evil all of the time. All of the time, God brings good out of evil. See, something's happened to you. You, you've screwed up, you made a mistake, you can take the wisdom that you learned and you can instruct your son or daughter about that and help them to avoid that trap and that pitfall. That's in every area of life. He goes on, he said, my dad said, verse 6, 
Do not forsake her, wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her. I mean, he's getting this from his dad. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom, Solomon, is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. What we got to get here, guys, is that he's reflecting on what his dad taught him. See, what, you know what I see? I see David with all these wives. I see David with all these kids. I see David living in this palace with this cesspool of jealousy going on in his family. He had screwed up with his other boys. He's got one kid raping a daughter. He's got, all, he's got another one murdering the son who killed the daughter. He's got this. He's sinned. He's screwed up. He see, God gives him this little kid, and he says, I'm going to pour my life into this kid. I got a shot. I, I remember Johnny Cash talking about the fact after he came to Christ, I think I read this in Decision Magazine. He had, was sharing his testimony, and you know, he was very close to, to Billy Graham. And when Christ came into his life, and after he had remarried, and then God gave him a son, Johnny Cash made the statement, God has been very gracious to give me another shot at doing it right. And, and, and quite frankly, at that point, as I recall, Cash was in his uh, late 40s. And he and his wife have this boy. Well, before, I mean, he didn't have any time for his kids. He's on the road, he's drinking, you know, he's popping pills. He's doing, those days are gone. He honed it. He's got this little kid, and here's Johnny Cash in his 40s, and the focus of his life became not, not the next record deal and not the touring. And not, the focus of his life, I'm going to build into this kid, and I'm going to turn this kid into a man that will walk with Christ. That was his whole focus in his life. See, that's where David was with Solomon. How many of you guys have grandkids? You get, you get, anybody got a new one? Like three, four, five? Yeah. Okay. You guys know what to do, don't you? See, that's why you can't go buy a Winnebago and just cruise the interstates 365 days a year. You ever see these guys? I think all they do is take laps around America. <laughs> and what do those people do all day? They're just, I mean, you know, that's fun here and there, and you take a trip and all. But, but you know, some of these folks, they're just always, they're, they're always on the move. Where are they going? What is the purpose? You know? I mean, you can lap America on an interstate. I mean, you know that, don't you? I mean, when you get in your 50s and 60s, life has got to be more than buying a $400,000 Winnebago and just driving the interstate. You're telling me that's life? You're telling me that's what you've worked for your whole life? You're telling me that's significant? I'll tell you what that is. That's a waste. That's no different than cruising the main drag when you were in high school. You just got a nicer deal. And you got some more money. But you're still doing what you were doing when you were 16. There's got to be some purpose. So you get grandkids? Well, then build into their lives. Yeah, you've made mistakes with your kids on it. You, you, you guys, you see, God gives us, he gives us another shot. 
It's really good stuff, isn't it? If you take advantage of it, and if you got your antenna up and realize what God's doing for you. Verse 8, still talking to Solomon about wisdom. Prize her, she'll exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. In other words, you, you want to have a good life? You want to have a beautiful life? Solomon, seek wisdom. And he's telling this, David's telling this to Solomon when this kid is young, when he's growing, when he's developing. When he's five years old, six years, you know, eight years, nine years old, 12 years, he, he's raising this kid through life. That's what he's doing. You got to give David credit. This, this Proverbs 4 is a tribute to David. David, hey, we all know about David's mistakes. David screwed up big time. But the grace of God does not mean that our screw-ups keep us from having a positive influence on our sons and on our daughters if we will confess our sin as David confessed his sin before God. Now, will there be consequences because of sin? Yes. The Bible doesn't lie to us. There will be consequences. But are we finished and are we done? Are our lives over? No. Not at all. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you would. Because in contrast to David and what he did with Solomon, I just, I gotta tell you guys, I love this Proverbs 4 because, you know, we've been cruising through Proverbs and, what you, and suddenly Solomon stops, puts the brakes on, and it's like he, it's like he pulls out his yearbook. And he starts looking back over his life to when he was a son, not a father, but a son. And he, as he's talking to his son, he's telling his son about when he was a son. So, and there's a tip. Sons love to hear stories about when you were a son. One of the great ways to connect is to tell them stories about what happened to you and things you encountered and because, see, they, see, all they know is you up here is some guy that's 35 or 45 or 50. And see, but see, you used to be their age. They need to hear about those things. They need to laugh with you. Uh, that, 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 that's just fun stuff because it just puts a different spin on the fact that, you know, my dad, my dad used to be my age. That's a connection. That's a heart connection. Fathering's a great thing if you take advantage of it. In 1 Samuel, let's go back to 1 Samuel 2. Most of you guys are already there. In 1 Samuel 2, we meet a guy who is the antithesis of what fathering should be. Um, his name was Eli. Uh, we, we meet Samuel uh, in, obviously, the book of Samuel. Um, Eli was the priest. We read about uh, Hannah, who was unable to have a, a child in the opening verses of 1 Samuel with her husband. Uh, her husband had another wife that was common in those days. And the other wife could bear children. Hannah could not. Verse 3, she would go up 
to worship the Lord and, um, and sacrifice in Shiloh and the two sons of Eli. Who was Eli? Eli was the priest. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests to the Lord there. And what would happen is Hannah would go up and she would pray and she would ask the Lord to bless her and give her a son. Well, what happened was God finally gave her a son, Samuel. And then eventually what she did was she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And after a certain number of years, she gave Samuel to the Lord and he was raised by Eli in, in the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, this was during a time the context of this is real interesting because uh, this was during the time of what we call the Judges. If you flip back about uh, two books, you go past Ruth, go to the left, you'll hit Ruth, and then you'll hit Judges. Um, look at Judges uh, 21, verse 25. Uh, what it does there, it gives us a description of the current moral situation in the nation of Israel. And it says this, I'm in 2125 of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if there's ever a phrase that describes where we are as a country, it's that phrase. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This was what was happening, and, and that phrase is just not once in Judges. As you read through Judges, you find that phrase repeated time and time and time again. This was a phase, a chapter in the history of Israel, where morality was, was fallen, it was collapsing everywhere. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was postmodernism. They didn't call it postmodernism. That's what we call it because we try to intellectualize the fact that every man does what's right in his own eyes. Uh, I was reading today in the Dallas Morning News, I was reading the obituaries. I always read the obituaries because uh, one day I'm going to make an appearance there. You know one day that you're, you're, your name's going to be in the paper. You know that, don't you? Because you're going to be dead. I always like, I do, I, always, I like reading the obituary. I like reading what they say about these guys. And some of it's true and some of it's not true. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. <laughs> because they're dead. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? There's no spin anymore. I mean, they can still spin your obituary. They can say this. They can. I, there was a deal in the paper this morning. I should have brought it with me. Maybe you saw it. There's, there's some Roman Catholic bishop, I think in Italy, and, and they had a big thing on him in the Dallas Morning News on the obituaries. And, and you know what they said about him? Is that he had made a statement that homosexuality was sexual perversion. That's what they, that, that was the whole thrust of the deal. This guy had served this, but he had made statements about homosexuality that it was sexual perversion. Like that, they were shaming the guy. They should have been applauding the guy. Because homosexuality is sexual perversion. We're not supposed to say that. We don't want to offend anybody. If you're here and you deal with homosexuality, in your heart, you know that's sexual perversion. You know it. And you know it's sin, just as heterosexual adultery is sin. You run around 
and have intercourse with as many women as you can, that's wrong and it's perversion. You, you know that in your heart. That's as wrong as homosexuality is wrong. Isn't it amazing how low people can go in their rebellion towards Almighty God? How do we get into this? <laughs> you were reading the obituaries. <clears throat> I was reading the obituaries. You know how we got into it? Eli was raising his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in a time where every man did what was right in his own eyes. So uh, what I'm saying to you is, guys, we got some parallels working here. That make sense? So is it necessary and is it important that we be in live, involved and connected with our children? Is it important that we teach them? Is it important that we instruct them? Is it important that we attempt to uh, teach them, as David did Solomon, the importance of acquiring wisdom? Is that important? Of course it's important. All right, let me show you this guy, Eli. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 2. We're going to find some stuff here that's really interesting. If you jump to chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now you know what's interesting about that? They were priests. Verse 13 says, In the custom of the priest with the people, um, any man offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Basically, a portion of the sacrifice went to the priest to support the priest. But in essence, what would happen was is that if you read the rest of the verse, Eli's sons were taking the portion that did not belong to them. They were stealing portions of the sacrifice that was to be given to the Lord, uh, and they were taking it for themselves. It would be the equivalent of a pastor letting his sons uh, go pilfer through the offering bag before it was counted and deposited into the bank. It was serious stuff. That's why verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Who despised it? The sons of Eli the priest. All right, we keep going. Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Oh, now here's something interesting. He's got two sons that are having sexual intercourse with women who come to worship. Uh, he's got a problem on his hands. He's got, he's got two boys that are ministering in the church, in the temple, in, in the tabernacle specifically, and uh, they, they are stealing from the Lord and they're having sex with women they're not married to. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my son, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulate. Um, Go down to verse 26. The boy Samuel, remember he's raising Samuel? The boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? 
And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? In other words, he's going back to the home in which you were raised. Eli, did I not give you? You're part of the tribe. You, you are the priest. You are to honor the Lord in your home. You are to do things a certain way. Have I not taken care of you? Have I not provided for you? Look at verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? Now catch this. And honor your sons above me. By making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. That's, that's quite a statement. He honored, uh, God says to this guy, why have you honored your sons above me? See, he, 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 what he's saying here is, you knew this was going on and you did not deal with this. You knew this was going on, you had an elephant in the front room and you wouldn't talk about it. There was sin, in other words, this has been going on a while. There had been, been a progress, did, did these guys just start out sleeping with women? Did these guys just start out? See, they started small and kept building up. And where the Lord indicts him, and this is really interesting, because, see, fathers are told in Scripture to discipline their children. Proverbs says, discipline your son while there is hope. Eli knew this was going on, and he refused to discipline, and the Lord says, when a man does this, you honor your sons above me. It's a very serious issue. See, he didn't sit down with his boys and talk to them about acquiring wisdom and loving wisdom and treasuring wisdom as David did with Solomon. This guy became passive and this guy became permissive. And that is a front to Almighty God. You have honored your sons above me. What a charge. And it's true. Verse 30, therefore the Lord of God Israel, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Um, Uh, eventually what happened is that uh, Eli's life was taken by the Lord. His son's lives were taken by the Lord. Um, it, it's, it's quite a sad story, guys, because what happened here is that if you look over at chapter 3, verse 13, after God is speaking directly here from, through the man of God to Eli, then there's a very famous event that happens where Samuel is asleep at night and the voice of the Lord calls out to him. It's delineated in, verse th in chapter 3. And the Lord's speaking to young Samuel, and, and in verse 4 he says, Here I am, Lord. Then he ran to Eli, and he thought Eli was calling to him. And he said, No, it wasn't me. Go back to sleep. And then he hears the voice again. And he runs to Eli, and Eli says, It wasn't me. And then he hears the voice again, and Eli realizes the Lord's speaking to this boy. Verse 9, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, it shall be if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Verse 10, The Lord came and stood and called it as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. 
For I, am told, for I have told him I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because he, his sons brought a curse on themselves, catch this, and he did not rebuke them. Now here's something that's true of fathering. And this is true, <clears throat> uh, this is true when our kids are under our house, under our roof. When, when a kid's wrong, it's the father's job to rebuke and it's the father's son to discipline. Eli is going to be judged because Eli saw what was going on and he did not rebuke, he became passive. You can't become passive. Now, you say, yeah, but, yeah, but now these boys are adults. That's right. Some of you have adult sons. Listen, here's the way it's supposed to work. You have a son, if he's six, you're going to deal with him in a certain way. But if he's 26, he's still your son. And can I say this to you? If he steps into sin, it's your job as a father to rebuke him. You don't become passive. You don't back off because you love him. Now see, it doesn't matter what it is. If he is off kilter, if he is off base, you're still his father. You still, you still need to take initiative. It's going to be different than when he's 16. But you're still a father. And you need wisdom. But you're still involved in his life. And you still have to. You, you, you can't let the elephant sit in the room and not say, that's dysfunctional. If there's passivity, if there's sin, if there's this, well, we just want to have peace in the family. You will never have peace in your family until this is met head on. Eli was rebuked because he did not rebuke his sons. Now, can I show you something great in this passage? Back in 1 Samuel 2, you guys still there? Are you? You still with me? All right. Go back to 1 Samuel uh, 2. And in that verse that we looked at, verse 30, there is a phrase that is contained in the message that God gave to Eli. And the phrase is this. For those, I'm in verse uh, 30. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Uh, Eli refused to honor the Lord. He honored his sons over the Lord. Um, they, they lived in a time where every man did what was right in his own eyes. Have you guys ever heard Tony Evans do his thing about a, 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 a family? And if you want to have a good family, it, it, you know, it's great. He, he, he goes crazy. <laughs> and what, what he does, he talks about, Huh? Yeah, he goes, fam, you want to have a good family? Oh, he really he talks about you want to have a good nation. He says, you want to have a good nation. And what he does is he starts with the family. He says, if you want to have a good nation, then you need to have a good family. You see what happens in a family? Because if you want to have a good family, you've got to practice certain principles, and you've got to follow the Lord in your family. You, 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 you want to have, have a good town? Then your town needs to practice certain principles, and da-da-da. You, you want to have a good state? Then you need to practice certain principles. And you want to have, and this point, like someone has said that every family is a small civilization. Like this church. This church is only as strong as its families. Because what is a church? A church is a gathering of families that are following the Lord. You see? So what he does is, you want to have a great nation? He starts working your way down to the lowest common denominator, which is the family. See, a family is a small church. That's why fathers are instructed to teach the word of God. How blessed is the nation who honors the Lord. So we, we read about the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And we, and we say, oh, that's terrible. And that's where we are right now. How in the world do we ever get to that place? 
How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Focus on the family handed out this little thing a while back. Nine, can't speak, nine landmark decisions that have been made in our country. First one, 1962. And these are landmark decisions by the Supreme Court. So the question is, how do we get to where we are today? How do we get to this point? Um, uh, the first one they mention is 1962, Ingle versus Vital. The Supreme Court restricts prayer in the schools. Do you realize, have you ever seen the graph on the SAT scores in America? From the time they gave the SAT scores, when they first started giving SAT scores to high school students, every year the scores went up until 1962, when prayer was taken out of the schools. And since 1962, every year the scores have gone down. In fact, the scores got so low that the SAT had to completely redo their system because it was getting so embarrassing, they had to make it easier so kids could score a normal way. Is that not sad? See, the beginning of the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of the Lord is the fear of, you know, I'm going too fast. And that, and that those two shots of espresso is starting to kick in. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of on fast forward here. I'm really feeling good, to be honest with you. <laughs> I should have done this last night, and then I could have watched the whole thing. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So in 62, they take the Lord in prayer out of the schools. SAT scores start going down. What's the next decision? Roe versus Wade, 1973. The Supreme Court finds that the right to personal privacy includes abortion. You know, I read the Constitution. I sat down and read it two weeks ago. I read it cover to cover. There's nothing in there. There's not one thing in there about a woman can take the life of a baby in her womb. There's not one thing in there. And not about privacy. Yeah, I'm getting you going, aren't I? You're getting revved up, man. But see, well, you, you take the Lord away. The next one, Stone versus Graham. Supreme Court strikes down a Kentucky statute requiring display of the Ten Commandments in public schools. Next one is 1994, Madsen versus Women's Health Center. Supreme Court upholds the creation of so-called buffer zones around abortion clinics, severely restricting pro-life free speech. It is free speech in America. It's supposed to be. The founders set it up that way. Except if you want to talk to someone about having an abortion. Hmm. Then they go to June 19, 2000. Uh, Santa Fe Independent School District versus Doe. Supreme Court overrules a Texas law allowing high school students to pray at athletic events. Can't do that. My gosh, you can't do that. That'll ruin this nation. It's good to pray before you go out and beat the crud out of another guy. <laughs> then they just keep going. They just keep going. Before you know it, you're at Lawrence versus Texas. The, the Supreme Court strikes down a Texas law prohibiting sodomy. Well, when they did that, I mean, if the floodgates are open, you see? And then they just keep going. They just, you know. And they wind up with uh, Goodridge versus Department of Public Health. Massachusetts Supreme Court rules that same-sex couples can marry under the laws of that state. Now, can I say something to you guys? This is not political. This is moral. And this is biblical. We're talking Bible. We're not talking Democrat. We're just talking biblical morality. Uh, Eli... Listen, Eli was raising his kids in a culture that's just like this. And what did Eli do? Eli got passive. You cannot 
get passive or complacent. So I'm watching the coverage last night of the Mavericks game. <laughs> Did you know the Mavericks played last night? The Visky scored 33 and they won. They beat the Kings. I had no idea they were even playing. I started watching election coverage at, uh, uh, at 1.30 in the afternoon yesterday. I did. I mean, I, I, had that I got that book finished. I did. I got it finished about 1.30, and I started watching. And I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on an endurance thing. You know what's really interesting? I'm watching, you know, Fox News and all this stuff and these different guys. And at one point, you know, uh, you got Brett Hume and the All-Stars, and they're talking about all this stuff. And, and they were making some observations. And at one point, uh, Fred Barnes, who was a believer, Barnes said, well, this thing turned when the guy, whatever his name is, said that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And I was listening to different guys talking about the election and when it all turned and all that. And I'm listening to these guys and I'm thinking, they're all wrong. Yeah, there were no weapons of mass destruction. There was no this, no that. But I remember back in the summer, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. The concern, the one concern personally that I had for Bush, he's a believer. He loves the Lord. He reads his Bible. He's connected with people that love the Lord. You should know that. I had a concern about him from day one because I felt he was soft in homosexuality. And I was concerned about his stand when Massachusetts Supreme Court was going to try and do this gay marriage thing. See, that's a creation ordinance of Almighty God. You don't play with that. I was concerned and I was praying that he would take a stand and that he would be strong. And when we went on, when we went on that cruise in the summer, uh, with Dr. Dobson, I was so encouraged when he told us when we got off of port and Bush was getting ready to make his announcement and he had called Dr. Dobson and they were talking about, we might have to edit that, but man, that was encouraging. But just prior to that cruise, I'm looking at the internet one day and I'm looking at all, and it comes out, Bush says he'll support a constitutional amendment that marriage is between a man and a woman. I got up, I walked in the kitchen, I said, Mary, Bush just got a second term. Now, I'm no prophet. Why would I say Bush just got a second term? Because of what God says in that passage in 1 Samuel. Those who honor me, them will I, what? Honor. Them will I honor. I just felt God was going to bless him. I just felt God was going to honor him because he took a stand. And he got heat. And he was criticized, and da da da. Why? Because we live in a culture where every man does what's right in his own eyes. I love the providence of God. I love the goodness of God, don't you? You know, Proverbs says that he who digs a pit for another will fall into it. You ever get, you ever get discouraged? You ever get overwhelmed? You see how fast things are going down? I, I read something a couple of weeks ago about the New York Times. Family, the New York Times is still owned by a particular family. Uh, apparently, they have a son who is in the homosexual movement and pretty much of an activist. He's been at the paper since the 80s. And he has slowly but surely and purposely brought in homosexual editors of the New York Times. And according to the National Review, close to 75% of the editors of the New York Times are now homosexual. Now, that's a little bit higher percentage than the rest of the population. As far as we've been told. And, we, and you always hear that it's 10%. It's not 10%. Those are skewered numbers. Uh, 
that kind of gives you an idea of how they're going to take positions and their slants and all that. But the interesting article was about the fact that it appears this whole Massachusetts Supreme Court situation was concocted and discussed with the New York Times. One of their preeminent columnists is Anthony Lewis, liberal columnist, attacks Christianity and Christians on a regular basis. Uh, his wife, interestingly enough, is the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And so out of the blue, they start pushing gay marriage. Uh, isn't it not interesting that today, as commentators are trying to figure this out, that one of the things that is coming out is that the preeminent issue, why was there such a turnout? Well, it appears, it appears that people came out to vote because of moral concerns. Moral concerns. So here, I love the Lord and I love how he works, don't you? So here are these guys, they're figuring, all right, let's do this, we'll get this going, Massachusetts, we'll get, we'll get this homosexual marriage, they're digging a pit. And they had no idea that Almighty God was working behind the scenes. And that a lot of people, a lot of people, there were 11 states yesterday that had, a, that had votes on whether or not marriage could be homosexual or heterosexual. It was resoundingly approved that it is man and woman, period, even in the state of Oregon. And they're nuts in Oregon. <laughs> even Oregon. 67% in Oregon. That's unbelievable. So here are these guys that got this thing, they're concocting all this, they're digging a pit, and little did they know, this is my read-out, little did they know that the very thing they're attempting to do would be the impetus to turn out a lot of Christians who'd been passive. You see? Now, I'm just telling you, it's a moral, biblical issue. You're saying, Steve, you're getting political. I'm not getting political. I'm talking Bible here. We're talking Bible. And, and you see how God works? So we get discouraged, we get in despair. Then you got, you know what? I think Bush was tested on this issue. Just like I'm tested on issues, just like you're tested. This church will be tested on issues. I'm not worried about this church right now. I'm worried about this church in 30 years. You ever thought about that? Hey, we know, we're, we know where we are right now. But where are we going to be in 30 years? Yeah, there's a church in this area that I've spoken at on many occasions. Um, you know what I think right now? I think they'd never have me back. <laughs> now, a lot of churches don't have me back. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean by it? You know what, you know what happened? They have become so passive, and the greatest sin in that church now is to become, in any way, shape, or form, is to be judgmental. They would have difficulty with what I said in here tonight because they want to be so loving and so accepting and so all-encompassing, they've neutered the Word of God. See, I think Bush was tested. You're going to honor me or are you going to honor the polls? You're going to... See, I, I'm tested. You're tested. We're all tested. But I'm going to tell you something, guys. There's a God in heaven, and he's watching, and he's looking, and he's got his men. I'm not talking Democrat. I'm not talking Republican. You got to understand, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking biblical issues and the glory of God. 
That's what I'm talking. You see? We're dealing with the same stuff today they were dealing with in this book. So here's what I'm saying. As men, we can't get passive like Eli. Have you screwed up? Yeah. Have I screwed up? Yeah. So did David. But you got to keep teaching. And you got to keep walking. And as Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward and I press on. And here's the thing. What we got to determine is in my life, I'm going to honor him. I'm not going to honor others over him. I'm going to honor him. And if we'll honor him, you know what? He'll honor us. That's a great way to live life. Because we don't have to be afraid. Do we? Because he'll fight for us. Are you encouraged? Let me tell you, I am so encouraged because my hope and trust is in the Republican Party and the new senators that are being elected. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest, you, you, you know what? Let's just say this. Let's keep our perspective. Let's thank God. But let's put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because whoever you're for and all that, they're going to disappoint you. And they're going to screw up. But let's focus on Jesus Christ. And let's pray that he would make us his men. In our post. You may not be in the Senate. Where's he got you? Right, don't get on those guys if you're not being the man you need to be. He's assigned us to, his, to, a, to our post. Let's honor him, and he'll honor us. Let's bow. Thanks, Lord. That you are so great. That you're running the show, that you're calling the shots. They dig a pit, and you let them fall into it. I pray for uh, each guy in here, Lord, that in our heart of hearts, we would follow you. I pray, Lord, for the for the children that are in our lives. Now, for some of us, they're up and gone, and they're living in another state. We're still their dads. We don't want to be running their life, and we don't want to be control freaks, but we want to be involved, and we want to be accessible, and we want to be available. Um, If something needs to be said, give us the wisdom, and give us a situation sovereignly where we can say a right word that will be heard. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Give us great wisdom, Lord, as we live in this culture. Help us to kill passivity. Help us to take the initiative. Help us to look for ways to teach these children that you have given to us and these grandchildren. Help us to live smart. Help us to live wisely. You're looking, you're watching, and you will honor us. We thank you for that promise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.